raised chickens for many years. I enjoy raising chickens, but I have to confess that lately, I've not so much been raising chickens as running a fox feeding program. So I have a large new batch of, of, of chicks, relatively new. They're a few months old now. Uh, I'm having a issue there. Uh, so got these chicks, and the, uh, the foxes have been uh, uh, getting a lot of them. Uh, they tend to break out of their enclosure, which in which they are aided by the goats, who are usually trying to break into their enclosure to get to the chicken feed and consume all the chicken feed. So they break in, and then the chicks get out. And every time the chicks get out, the foxes seem to intuitively know that the chicks are out in the yard, and we lose some more of them. And so we've gone from having a rather large batch to having just a handful left and trying to figure out how to resolve this, this problem. Uh, I have a bit of a dilemma because the, uh, one of the reasons, aside from eggs, of course, that we raise chickens, is uh, they do a really good job of controlling bugs in the yard. And so not having them free range sort of defeats the purpose. But then free ranging, they're subject to these predator attacks. Now, I used to have a really terrific dog, about a 100-pound dog, that patrolled the yard and kept everything secure and kept predators at bay. Uh, he has since passed away. Now I have a 150-pound dog that patrols the living room and his food dish and is pretty much useless otherwise. So that's not working for me anymore, and so we're, we're trying to figure out uh, a different solution. So essentially, I, I need them out in the yard in order to do their job, but letting them out in the yard is a precarious thing. And it occurred to me as I was uh, reviewing my options for this this week that ministry feels like this a lot, that we spend a lot of time trying to protect each other and particularly young people in the faith, protect them from the world, and yet we all need to be in the world in order to accomplish our mission, yet the world is kind of a dangerous place, and, and there's this sense of if, if we leave our pen, if we leave our containment, if we leave the safety of our walls, will we survive? Well, I have two adult hens one black Australorp and one copper-colored Americana, two adult hens who have survived all of the fox attacks over the last two years. Uh, I, I call them Henny and Penny. Penny has actually been caught by foxes twice, been mauled by them, and survived, lived to tell the tale. And so I look at these two adult hens, and I think, what is it about these two? Uh, I was telling one of my kids this week, said maybe what I just need to order like 200 chicks and I'll get down to like a dozen who have the, the smarts and the will to survive. What is it about these two hens that has allowed them to survive? And free-ranging, no less. And I wonder the same thing about us, the church. What? What is it that makes us strong enough 
to live out the freedom that we have in Christ, to be courageous as we go forth into the world. We've been reading through Colossians, talking about the sacred cure, and Paul has been warning us, Paul's concern is that we will be taken captive by deceptive philosophy. Now, we spent a few weeks on this already, but this is really important. I, I think in some, in some ways we think that we're sort of immune to this. Like this was a first century church problem, and we don't have this issue anymore. We don't, we don't fall prey to deceptive philosophy. But that is not the case. We are not immune. And Paul's warning resonates today just as it did then. Now, we've talked about how deceptive philosophy weaves its way through the culture and creates dangers there. We've talked about how deceptive philosophy makes its way into government and human leadership and the, the dangers that we face there. But are those things the real threat? When there are lies in the culture, as there always are, and when there are lies in human government, as there always are, is that really the threat to Christianity? Is that the threat to our faith? Because we already have victory. We have victory over those lies. This is, this is where Paul begins for us. Colossians 2, starting with verse 13, says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, trying, uh, triumphing over them by the cross. This whole discourse that Paul has given us begins with the premise that Christ is supreme and that in Christ we have freedom. We are already victorious. We've already overcome. And yet, Paul says, if you already have this victory, if you already have this freedom, if you already recognize that Christ is supreme, why do you keep falling back into these old ways, these old patterns? Why do you keep surrendering what you have in Christ? See, that, that is the challenge to us. It's not that evil exists. It's not that the darkness is. It's that we make the mistake of stumbling into it. The reality is that persecution has an inverse impact on the faith. So when the world around us gets really dark, church actually does better. We enjoy all the freedoms, the freedom of worship, freedom of assembly, freedom, all the freedoms that we have in this country, but the reality is churches that are oppressed actually do more for the kingdom. Churches that are comfortable tend to fall into some negative patterns, but, but, but really, historically speaking, the harder it is to be a Christian, the more Christianity thrives the more Christianity flourishes. And so we're tempted to look at the world around us, which is clearly going through some stuff, having some issues. We look at the world around us, and we blame the culture for the decline of the Christian faith. But the reality is, 
are cultures in our world that are much more antagonistic towards the faith in which the faith is growing exponentially. So if we look today at the church in China, it is growing exponentially. If we look at the church in Iran, the church in Iran is the fastest growing Christian church in the world. Iran, it's illegal to be a Christian there. Fastest growing church in the world. You may suffer torture and death to align yourself with Christ, but they're doing it much faster than we are. In this sense, I think Christians are a little bit like wine grapes. You don't really experience the full harvest until they're crushed. They've got to be crushed. And then, and then, then Christ does this amazing thing. He makes us into fine wine. Complacency is a far greater danger to the church. Now again, we, we, we somehow we think we've matured past this already, but that is not the case. You look at the whole history of ancient Israel. Look at this, this thing that they do, this cycle that they go through over and over and over again where they sort of lose their way and they, they forget about God. Things get comfortable. Things get comfortable for them, and, they, and they've got political power, and they've got military power, and their crops are coming in, and everything's going well, and they begin to forget about God. Well, they still go through all the motions, and they still call themselves the children of God. They still take pride in that. But they tolerate idolatry, and they, they get apathetic, and they get lazy about stuff. And what happens the whole time? The prophets are screaming at them, look what's going on. Look how you've forgotten your God. You better shape up or bad, bad things are going to happen. And what do the people of Israel do? Eh, things seem okay. You, you seem a little uptight, but things seem okay. And it's not until a judgment of God finally comes on Israel, then there's this awakening, there's this repentance, there's this revival, there's people that turn back to God, there's people that become passionate about their faith again because they recognize how far they were from God and how much they need God, and, and they try to begin rebuilding that relationship. And so the space that we occupy right now, in a lot of ways, is the most dangerous space for the church. Because the culture has not quite begun to persecute the church. And the church has not quite begun to respond. It's in this space where we are relatively comfortable, where we are critical of the world around us but not threatened particularly by it. It's in this space that we are in the most danger because it's in this space that deceptive philosophy can take root within our fellowship. Paul goes on in verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Now, we read this passage. Historians, biblical historians and theologians for for centuries now, I've been trying to discern what exactly is the heresy that Paul was talking about. And there were a number of heresies to choose from. But Paul never really gets all that specific. And I think that's on purpose. I think it's because he recognizes that, that whatever apostasy, whatever false teaching, whatever heresy is taking place in the church is not the first and it won't be the last. And he wants to insulate the church against them all. He wants us to recognize the pattern behind them. The apostasy and legalism arise from idle faith. Where persecution tends to sharpen the mind, it tends to focus us on what actually matters, on what's really important. When you're living or dying for the faith, you don't mess around. You don't play games. Jesus himself says in John 3.16, whoever believes in me will not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus describes the gospel as a life and death message. And there is a sense in which the church doesn't do well when it loses sight that of the fact that this is a life and death matter, that this is serious stuff. We're not your spiritual self-help program. We're here to teach you the difference between life in Christ and death without it. The idle and complacent church finds time to explore foolish ideas People will rise up with notions that, that, that center attention on them. We end up with these fanciful, unbiblical theologies. We end up honoring human traditions. We end up breaking things down into formulas. At which point, if the fox, if the fox is the deceptive philosophy the fox is no longer circling the hen house. The fox is inside the hen house, a guest inside the hen house, a welcome guest inside the hen house, sharing afternoon tea with us. And we're not paying attention to the fact that every once in a while he just leans over and has one of our fellow believers for dessert. Paul says in verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, why do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. 
Here's, here's essentially what, what Paul is saying to us. That you end up, because you, because you venture away from Christ, you end up with rules and rituals and traditions and assumptions that are just based in human things. Essentially, then, what we're doing is we are trading our faith in Christ for bad religion. Now, when we think of bad religion, we think maybe about cults. We think maybe about uh, suicide bombers. Maybe we might think of, you know, some greedy televangelist who's selling miracles. What we don't often think about is our fellow Christians. We don't often think about ourselves. We don't think about uh, the other people sitting in the pews with us. We don't think about uh, our local preacher. Why not? Christians can be deceived, can we not? We can take the wrong path. We can get it wrong. Paul chastises us. Why? Why when you have this freedom? Why when you when when you're no longer a prisoner to this world do you keep subjecting yourself to this prison? Why do you keep becoming captive to it? Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, and this folks, this this I think this is the scariest teaching in the New Testament. Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do great works in your name? Jesus says, I will turn to them and I will say, leave, because I don't know who you are. Folks, those aren't pagans. Those aren't atheists. Those are people who actually believe that they were working in the name of Christ. And they're going to arrive at the day of judgment confident that the great works that they have done in the name of Christ will be their salvation. And Jesus is going to say, I, I don't really know who you are. You might have been throwing my name around, but I don't recognize you. See, the darkness we have to fear is not the darkness in the world. Darkness in the world cannot overcome the light of Christ. But bad religion that makes its way into our lives into our hearts and minds, into our homes and our churches. That bad religion will be our undoing from within. Bad religion is Jesus-flavored. Now let me explain that a bit. You ever drink grape soda? I used to like grape soda when I was a kid. Uh, a lot of us probably liked grape soda as a kid. So it's like sickeningly sweet, right? Sickeningly sweet and carbonated grape soda. Every once in a while, I guess out of nostalgia or something, 
if I'm going up to a pop machine and I see that it has grape soda, I think, hmm, I think I might like to have a grape soda. After a couple swallows, I'm like, yeah, I think I'll go back to something else. But every once in a while, I think I'd like to have a grape soda. Here, here's the thing about grape soda. Grape soda tastes nothing like grapes. Have you ever noticed this? Grape soda does not taste like grapes. It, it, it tastes vaguely sometimes like grape jelly that's been watered down. Because you've added all that extra sugar, you know, to grape jelly. But grape soda does not taste like grapes. And yet, I have been conditioned by years of drinking it to recognize that flavor as grape flavor. You know why we call it grape flavor? Is a flavor of grape without being grape. Right? When you it doesn't matter what product it is. You go pick up at the market and it says it's got such and such a flavoring. Most of the time what that means is some guy with a test tube putting together clear liquids and injecting that into that product to make it taste like something that you think it should taste like. It doesn't mean that we took the essence of grapes and infused them into the soda. It means that we've created a flavor that we now call grape. But I'm so familiar with that flavor, I still think of that as grape, even though if I was eating grapes while drinking grape soda, the two would not taste anything alike. Here's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Are we allowing Jesus Christ to make us into fine wine, or are we settling for grape soda? Are we a people who are so submitted to Christ that he is transforming us, and he's, he's doing things in our life, and he's putting us to work, and he's maturing us, and he's growing us, and all of these great things are happening because of Christ in us, or have we settled for being Jesus-flavored? For having the look and some kind of weird taste that we somehow have come to associate with Jesus that isn't actually Jesus. And too many, too many times, Christ has been named and claimed in our fellowships, but he is the theme of our fellowship and not the substance. I, I, I have to wonder sometimes. We have to ask ourselves this question. If Jesus returned tomorrow, are the choices that I have been making, are they choices that I would be comfortable defending to him? Are they choices that he would have made for me? Bearing in mind that a lot of people, when he does come, are going to approach him confidently, assuming that they are. my time, my resources, my priorities, the battles that I've choose, chosen to fight, the people that I've chosen to care about, are all these things revealing that Christ is the king of my life or that Christ is the theme, flavor? The bad religion exists to make some people feel important. I give preachers a soapbox to stand on and a semi-captive audience to preach to. 
might give us a task to perform that we assume nobody else can, a, a vote in our fellowship, expectations that my demands will be met, attention that I think I deserve to receive. See, the church can very quickly become an empty shell of ritual and tradition and hierarchies. An institution that serves to make us feel saved, make us feel somehow superior, make us feel valued, and we can be quite nasty. The church doesn't do a good job of making us feel valued. I say it makes some people feel important because as the darkness is encroaching and we we fear the darkness, we struggle with the darkness, we, we feel the darkness is a threat to us, we are primarily concerned with our comfort, not with the impact it will have on lost people. So while we make ourselves feel important, we don't necessarily treat the mission as important. As a matter of fact, the church in America has a tendency to sort of play the great escape game. As the world around us gets darker, say, well, all this means is that Jesus is coming sooner. Folks, I, I cannot, I have lost count of how many people I've known over the years who have said they were absolutely convinced based on world events that Jesus was coming in their lifetime. Most of them are dead now. What does that tell you? See, we have a tendency to think if, if things get bad around us, if it really gets difficult here, Jesus will come and he'll rescue us from all of that. And a lot of, a lot of Christian denominations have taught a message that's very much like that. Why do we get off so easy? Why would we be spared tribulation? What, are, are we so special? Are we so important? Will we be spared martyrdom? I mean, this weekend we, we remember the fallen, right? People who fought for our liberties in this country. We, we don't have a weekend to remember people who died for our faith. Matter of fact, none of us know anybody that died for our faith. What about the people who died so that you could hear the gospel? What about the people who died so that we could read God's word in our own native language? Because they did. Well, we don't want to think about that. We don't want to be put to that test because the reality is bad religion embraces Christian mission as long as it doesn't inconvenience. We're all in favor of transformed lives. We're all in favor of discipleship. We all like the idea of evangelism and church growth. So long as it doesn't negatively impact my schedule, so long as it doesn't uh, cost me more money, so long as it's not difficult or messy or uncomfortable or new. If 
Last year, churches all across the country shut down for at least a couple of months, some much, much longer. In the name of the COVID pandemic, COVID gave us excuses for a lot of things. I don't, I don't know about you. Uh, when, uh, when we shut everything down, I quit my diet. You probably noticed. I quit my diet. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge there's no connection between the two things. Other than they're both inconvenient. COVID was inconvenient. My diet was inconvenient. I decided I didn't want to do two inconvenient things at the same time. My diet wasn't bad to me. As a matter of fact, my diet was good to me. It was doing good things for me. But I had a good excuse to quit it, and so I did. Folks, a lot of people just quit church. We don't, we don't have the numbers in yet, but the preliminary figures suggest that millions of people just quit. Just done. Now, there's no logical connection between the two. What does it tell us? What does it tell us? So many people just looking for a reason to walk away. That tells us that something was wrong long before COVID arrived. Oh, people leave for so many reasons. Or they stay and complain for so many reasons. That preacher preaches about the wrong stuff. Or even worse, he preaches about the right stuff, but he preaches 10 minutes too long. Those singers sing the wrong songs, or they worship too long. Or the leadership is changing my church, my ministry, in ways that I don't understand. I have unmet expectations. I have hurt feelings. I have an old wound, an old rivalry that goes back 5, 10, 20, sometimes 30 years. And we are asked to consider each of these excuses, each of these human preferences over and above what actually matters to Jesus Christ. Paul says of the people that bring these things, he says they have lost connection with the head. The people that bring these empty philosophies, they have lost a connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligament and sinews grows as God calls it, causes it to grow. Bad religion is decapitated. That's what Paul says. It is decapitated. Any of you know the story of Mike the Headless Chicken? Mike the Headless Chicken was a chicken in Fruta, Colorado. A farmer went out one evening, was going to butcher a chicken and have it uh, have a chicken for dinner. And you know the traditional way to butcher a chicken, you put the chicken up on the block, whack its head off with an axe. Now any of you have ever done this, participated or watched this, know 
that that chicken continues to flop around for quite a long time after you take its head off. It's quite the sight to see. But their nervous system is such as spread throughout their body that they'll continue to flop and make a spectacle. Well, in this particular case, the axe was hot. And when the farmer went to cut the chicken's head off, took off most of the chicken's head, but left one ear and enough of the brain stem that that chicken just didn't die. And the hot axe somehow cauterized the wound, and that chicken continued to live for another 18 months after that night when the farmer went out to have it for dinner. The farmer, recognizing that this was unusual, started taking this chicken out to shows and displays, and at one point was earning the equivalent of almost $50,000 a month marketing Mike the Headless Chicken. And in Fruita, Colorado, they still have a Mike the Headless Chicken Day that they celebrate. Chickens don't have a very large brain to begin with. And so preserving that one little bit allowed Mike the Chicken to continue to walk around, to roost. He was kind of clumsy. Tell him about losing the... And he'd walk around. He would attempt to peck at the ground, which I think is fascinating. You have no head, no beak, and he's still trying to peck at the ground because that's what his nervous system is telling him he's supposed to do. They had to feed Mike the chicken with an eyedropper. Paul says that the purveyors of bad religion have lost their connection with the head. They're still walking around like they're alive and kicking. The nervous system is still working. They have lost their connection with the head. And like a headless chicken, they are flopping around with the appearance of life because bad religion has the look of life even when it's dead. Or like John says to the church at Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive. But you're not. Here's, here's the struggling part. Here's, here's the part that, that's impacting our mission. Bad religion is often mistaken for the church. See, people in our community, they, they think that they know what Christianity is about. They think they know what the church is about. But what is it that they've actually seen? What is it they've actually witnessed? People in our community, people in our nation, recognize the church as a place where they talk about love and fellowship, but their members stir dissension and spread gossip and hold on to old bitterness. They see the church as a place where people talk about the gospel and they talk about salvation but there's no urgency, there's no desperation in their heart for seeking lost people. It's a place where people talk about kingdom, but they live by standards and priorities that don't look that much different from mine. It's a place where people talk about living for Jesus, but in a lot of ways they live for themselves and they call it living for Jesus. 
world looks at bad religion and thinks, thinks that it knows what the church is because sometimes bad religion is the only church they've ever seen. And folks, we, we could be forgiven if we thought that bad religion was the church too because for a lot of us, that's mostly what we've seen. Is that offensive? Probably. Maybe we need to be offended. Church in America isn't dying because American culture has gotten darker. The church in America is dying because we've been so busy propping up the dead carcass of bad religion that we have not noticed we don't have a head anymore. See, we have a tendency to define the church by ourselves. We say we, we are the church, therefore what we're doing, that's what the church does. We start with us and then we work our way backward to define what the church is. But the sacred cure that Paul wants to offer us is about restoring the supremacy of Christ. Restoring the supremacy of Christ in, in my life, in my home, and in our church. So folks, th th this is what I want to share with you this morning. This is the difficult message that we need to understand. We're not the church simply because we say we are. A lot of people are going to come before Christ on the day of judgment saying, I'm a Christian, I was a member of your church, I did great works for you. And he's going to say, I'm not familiar with you. I don't know you. I don't know what you were doing, who you were serving, but it wasn't me. So this is what we need to understand. We are only the church when we care more about what Jesus wants than about what we want. That's what it means to be the church. That's the, the core of our testimony is Jesus is Lord. That means he is supreme in all things, and that's what we're responding to. If we come together as a fellowship and what we want is in any way more important than what Jesus wants, we're not behaving as the church, we're not being the church. As a matter of fact, we are being the hypocrites that the world accuses us of being. There's a reason. There's a reason that Jesus says the first step to discipleship is to deny yourself, and it's because there is no way to serve Christ and to serve ourselves at the same time. I have to be out of the way first, and then I can follow. Now Paul, Paul warns us that even after we have this freedom, we're going to be tempted to surrender it, tempted, tempted to give it back. Why would we want to? 
Why would we want to? Paul asks us. We have in Christ, we have freedom, we have power, we have love, we have hope, we have faith, we have joy. What is it that we're going to do better than that? We're halfway through Colossians. In the second half of Colossians, Paul wants to lead us on a journey back to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It is my prayer that all of us humbly will desire to make that journey and restore the body to its proper head.